So, the woman I'm partnered with today for this shared sermon often calls me one of her spiritual directors. What she sometimes is able to hear is that I think of her, as well as the work of the Peace Institute as a whole, as one of my spiritual directors. A spirit director you turn to for deep companionship and profound wisdom learnings in the aftermath of the unthinkable, in the aftermath of the murder of a loved one, in the aftermath of the murder of a child. It was in the aftermath of my goddaughter's 17-year-old nephew, Kenny Hall, being killed, being murdered, that I personally came to know the guidance of Tina and her blessed staff at the Peace Institute. And perhaps throughout the time of our relationship with one another, the fuller, more honest truth between us as women of diverse identities by class and race is how we learn to be spiritual directors to one another in this journey, a journey which continues, a journey that began so many years ago in 1991 when two young boys were killed in Roxbury by the name of Charles Copney and Corey Grant. Charles was 12 at the time and he was the youngest victim at that time of gang-related violence. Corey was 15. My life intersected with history then. I am so keenly aware of history because of that. My life intersected with an activist who was brought to the Newton Unitarian Society to speak about gang violence happening in the city and asking for help from the Newton Unitarian Congregation at that time. And the youth ministry that I came to lead eventually under the Unitarian Universalist Urban Ministry for almost 18 years sprang out of that moment and many more moments of great joy and fun and learning and deepening into the intersections of class and race that I really didn't understand at that time other than superficially. I was working class in my roots, but I, and that was the original energy, but I didn't understand the powerful intersection of race and class until I began that life journey and began it with some really delightful and wonderful young people and their families. So much joy and also tragedy and loss. In 1995, Moses Grant was killed. In 1996, we were celebrating his life in the aftermath. You know, the journey went on. There were many, many, many more losses. And I think the one that hit me the hardest was the loss of Kenny. And then I met this remarkable woman who at the time did not have much in the way of staff, 
who lived in a very state of being than she does now. Today, she has more breath and peace herself in her. But at that time, and at that time, there was a fierceness that has not left her, but it has changed, I think, over the years. It has become a more fierce peace, is what I like to call it. At that time, there was a fierceness and the anger more visible. And I'm speaking these words to you now for the first time, I know, right? Okay? But at that time, that anger was necessary, the fierceness was necessary to get this Boston government to pay attention to the fact that they had lost a young person on the streets, and by God, they were going to pay somehow for helping to bury this person. And you would not let that go. You were on the phone, and you were talking to them, and you were not going to let one more person meet that barrier. You still do that today. But I remember at the time, was like, I don't want to be on the other end of that phone. Right? I do not want to be on the other end of that receiving energy. But I was so grateful for it. And I know the family was grateful for it as well. And grateful for the choices that you have made not to give up, to keep fighting for peace, to keep giving your life in this direction, while also trying to take better care along the way. So this idea of fierce peace also came to me, and I'm thinking there's a larger sermon in this somehow. Fierce peace, right? Mm -hmm. It's that fierceness of when anybody has survived oppression, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, whether it's Black Lives Matter and people dying on the street and the voices that are rising up, whether it's the immigrants fighting across the desert or a sea to find some safety somewhere. There is a fierceness there that must be respected and attended to. And it's a lived reality that those of us who have more privilege have the luxury not to touch so deeply. And I encourage us to touch it because I think there has been nothing so deep and so profound for me as being in relationship up close with the power of coming through to the other side and seeing what a larger experience of life can be by allowing ourselves to touch that. So again, thank you. And I am honored to be here with you today and to be able to offer this space also with you. So thank you. Thank you. God, I ask that you equip me to do your will and not my own. Bless me that I may be a blessing to those under the sound of my voice. It is truly an honor being here with you again, this time to share more words on the leadership of the Reverend Clyde Crops. I'm gonna ask you to just take my hand, hear my voice, feel my heart, and walk with me. I'm gonna add the voices of just a few women of color 
to those back in history. These are local women organizing, advocating, and promoting peace, even in the midst of our pain and suffering. Why? To honor our beloved children and through service for our God. It is up to each of us women to heal our hearts, rebuild our homes, our families, our educational systems, and our communities for the next generation. Through our pain, we have found purpose to serve a creative God, a God who provides guidance, directions, and inspiration, a God who has equipped us with the right tools to establish new possibilities in his kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We as local women join our hearts and our hands to create a new reality that provides clear solutions to our family and to community problems. We serve with wisdom and are guided by seven core principles of peace. God's peace, not man's peace. Through love, unity, faith, hope, courage. Yeah, even that word, forgiveness. Let me introduce you to the first woman of peace. Her name is Pastor Kim Odom. She's a daughter, a wife, a mother, a co-pastor, whose young son Stephen was shot October 14, 2007. Pastor Kim has worked tirelessly as a neighborhood leader in Dorchester, and she has a powerful voice in calling for meaningful action to stop gun violence in our communities. I really had this quest to understand, she says. You see, I also wanted to know who was doing what and how could I add value. She continues saying, gun violence is an epidemic. And so, where there is an epidemic of disease outbreaks, what do we do? She responds with a commitment that her beloved Stephen's death will not end on the streets of Dorchester. Pastor Kim, a woman of peace, a child of God, has channeled her grief into action and advocacy. She shares Stephen's stories to inspire others to live life like there is no tomorrow. The spot for life, the Stephen P. Odom training for life, a place where faith matters, family matters, community matters, and life matters. Their mission is connecting families to mentors and exposing them to the tools and resources needed to be successful in life. Simple, isn't it? Second woman of peace, Clarissa Turner. Clarissa forgave the two men convicted of killing her beloved son, Willie, November of 2011. She says, I never thought I would have come here and say this as tears ran down her face. I forgive you, she says to one of them. I forgive you, she says to the other. I pray that God will give you peace and comfort. Clarissa, a mother, a quiet woman, a child of God, 
channeled her grief into hope and healing. Her ministry, Legacy Lives On, provides ongoing support to families who had lost loved ones to homicide. Their goal is simple, to support one another with the emotions around what happened to their beloved. Their ministry focuses on building positive relationship and bringing awareness of how families in urban settings are affected by street violence. Clarissa believed that we are our own supporters. She says, it's time to help one another and let it be known our loved one's legacy will always live on. Are you still with me? Let me tell you about this woman named Tina Sherry. I lost my son in December of 1993. He was caught in a crossfire. When I was told that he was brain dead, the pain was too much to bear. It felt like I left my body. It felt like I exploded into a billion pieces. It was like a bomb going off inside my mind, inside my heart, and inside my soul. Yet it is because of his murder and the love of my living children, Alexandra and Alan, you see, I knew that Lewis' life could not end on the street, that he could not be yet another statistic. As a child of God, he was worth more. There were no answers that were acceptable to me at that time as to why one human being could kill another human being. After the burial, I survived through prayer, and I realized that there were two mothers in pain, and we were victims at both ends of that gun. The question then moved from why me, God, to what do you want from me, God? Guided through the scriptures and books, music to listen, and yes, sand to play in, all with gentleness, patience, and care by many women around me, Dr. Zamore, Dr. Prothero Stitz, Dr. Batts, Minister Lisette Wright, and Reverend Michelle Walsh are just a few of the women that guided me and created a path for me to redirect my thoughts, my anger, so that I can live my purpose of serving God. I also realize in death, there is life. 1994, the Peace Institute has served as a center of healing, teaching, and learning for families and communities dealing with murder, and the trauma that grief and loss accompanies. Our solution-driven work and rooted in the conviction that peace is possible. By providing families with integrated services through immediate response to homicide, plus ongoing healing, teaching, and learning. Working with communities to establish protocols for homicide and advocating for systematic shift in society through knowledge transfer publications, and peace training. After doing much reading, thinking, practicing, meditating, praying, and continue to play in the sand, I have come to understand that forgiveness is a private, internal process of acknowledging the pain and anger that I felt after the murder of my son and the pain and anger after divorce. The practice of forgiveness for me is a private journey and a process of grieving. 
Practicing forgiveness continues to be a process of me regaining control of my sense of power and giving myself permission to be joyful again. When I choose to forgive, I'm essentially choosing to stop being a prisoner of my own pain. Choosing the practice, this principle of forgiveness, does not deny or minimize my pain, nor does it condone the act. It is not about forgetting my son. For me, it's to find my purpose and to honor my son and to serve God. Joyce Meyer writes, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision we make because we do what's right before God. It's a quality decision that won't be easy, and it may take time to get through the process, depending on the severity of the offense. Let me give you two forgiveness in action. In 2000, I reached out to the mother of the person who was convicted of killing my son. When we met, there were silent tears and warm embrace. Mother to mother, woman to woman, heart to heart. I told her I felt no anger or hatred towards her family. She was quick to say, I am sorry, and to take my hands of forgiveness. We are very different women, yet we are the same. We share a common purpose. We are mothers, we are grandmothers, daughters, wives, and we are children of God. We believe that in every crime there is an opportunity to improve society by learning from each other and by treating each other with dignity, respect, and compassion. Lewis was a victim of her son, Charles Bogues. Charles Bogues was a victim of the American society, and we are the mirror of this society. 2010. With prayer and support, I made a decision to meet face-to-face -face with Charles through a victim-centered offender dialogue under the direction and leadership of John Wilson of Just, Just Alternatives and with support from Erin Gaffney, the Mass Department of Correction Victim Services, and with spiritual direction from Reverend Michelle Walsh and Minister Lissette Wright. This, for me, was a part of my inner healing. I chose forgiveness for myself because it moved me from neutral, from being stuck in the ditch, the fact that I can be a role model to my children on their healing journey, and to Mr. Bogues and his family. And this practice, I believe, can and will interrupt the cycle of kill or be killed. November 12th, a parole hearing was held. Yeah, those feelings of anger, rage, and the thirst for revenge all seemed to take over my soul. And I realized that in the criminal justice systems, there are no winners. I searched my heart. I prayed to God. I talked with my priests, cried with friends, families, and spiritual advisor. I prayed for God's will be done and for him to make his presence known to me in a very real way. In the midst of my pain and anger, I did not oppose his parole. However, the decision came with conditions, recommendations, and expectations. They included personal accountability, spiritual guidance, community service, family engagement, and community support. December 2012, a meeting was held at the Peace Institute with friends and families of Mr. Bogues and his community support team, Dr. Batts from Vision Inks and Lynn Levy from Span Inc two more women of peace. There were three goals that we wanted to achieve that meeting. 
One, to introduce Mr. Bogues' support team to the healing reconciliation work of the Peace Institute through these seven principles of peace. To provide support to his family and friends to help them interrupt the shame, blame, the shame and blame that families are faced on a daily basis, especially families in urban settings. And to build relationships between families and friends of the victims and the accused. By the end of the meetings, these goals were achieved. In unity, we created a clearly defined, comprehensive community reentry plan for Mr. Bogues. Today, he is out on parole. I recently participated on a restorative justice panel with Mr. Bogues, his mother, and a program that is based on both of our family's journey of healing, reconciliation, and forgiveness. I know that extended my hand and my heart of forgiveness has saved him and his family. In return, his mother is a role model to other women whose loved ones are convicted of murder and or are on parole. Through the Intergenerational Justice Program, Doris is a woman of peace. <laughs> this is another sermon. I'm closing. I believe that my personal and my professional journey dovetails well with your mission. Awakened by worship, nourished by tradition, and united by love, where you strive to create a multicultural, spirit-filled community that works for justice, fosters spiritual curiosity, and faith formation. You share joys, you heal brokenness, and you celebrate the sacred of all. Your dedication to social justice, Black Lives Matter's movement, and shelter for the homeless youth, and your presence, large contingent, at the Mother's Day Walk for Peace does not go without being noticed. You are truly standing on the side of love indeed. Thank you for your ongoing support. You are a part of my family. You are a part of our family. May the seven principles of love, unity, faith, hope, courage, justice, and forgiveness guide your day, and may you continue to be inspired by the many women of peace that you will meet in your everyday life. I leave you with God's peace.